You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Werewolves, vampires, witches. So much has been recorded on these figures of legend and lore. But what if I told you that one of the most dogged investigators of such topics was himself a fascinating creature? Legends tell of a scholar of the esoteric and the transmundane, a fellow well-versed in the unusual and mysterious, who delved into the history of monsters and demonic threats with a righteous fury and obsessive hunger for the very last detail. He is said to have dabbled in the occult himself. Stories say he kept company with notorious warlocks as well as priests. He wore strange costumes, held unorthodox ceremonies, and led a life full of secrets and intrigue. In this episode, we try to peel back the masks, burn off the fog of legend, and put some bright sunlight onto the mysterious character that was Montague Summers. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. In this episode, we discuss the legendary life of Montague Summers, a man whose scholarly research into monsters and devils produced some amazing books. If you are a researcher into matters mystical and allegedly paranormal, Summers can be an invaluable addition to your bookshelf because his works are so comprehensively researched. It seems to me that few people have come so close to being a real-life walking character from an H.P. Lovecraft story as Montague Summers. But I'll leave it to our guest today, Dr. Brian Regal, to tell you that story. We also talk about giant bug movies, the nature of historical research, and we have some news about an upcoming experiment to try and create a live online event for Monster Talk. Stay tuned. <laughs> 
Monster Talk. We're going to be discussing the life of Montague Summers, another whose books are quite fascinating to scholars of the strange and the occult. Several titles will be of interest to Monster Talk listeners, and we'll put a link to those in the show notes. As an example, his book, The Werewolf in Lore and Legend, is simply an astonishing collection of references to various links throughout literature of the Western world. But his books are also quite daunting in that he seems to assume readers will be able to casually read both Latin and Greek. And in his books, the authorial voice is one that not only supports the existence of a mysterious world full of monsters and mystical phenomena, but also chides the reader and the world at large for not being more aware of it. So tonight we're welcoming back Dr. Brian Regal, Assistant Professor for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine at Kane University in New Jersey. And if I've called it Keen in the past, I was saying it wrong. Brian's back for his fourth interview. He's previously been on to talk about Charles Darwin fighting werewolves, the early history of the Sasquatch and Yeti studies, and the shocking true story of the Jersey Devil. And you can find those episodes in our archives. Brian is also the author of a forthcoming piece, hopefully to be published in 40 Times, on Montague Summers, a controversial but colorful character in the 20th century occult studies field. Welcome back, Brian. Thank Hi, you. Brian. Thanks. Hi, how are you? That was a mouthful. Good. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Good intro. I'm all over the place. I, I am a professional, though. Don't, don't, uh, no, no. It, you're, you're awesome. Professional what? The kids, <laughs> kids shouldn't try this at home until they're properly trained. <laughs> so... All right, so I, I'm familiar with Monty Summers from reading about uh, vampire lore and especially werewolf lore from, in my personal reading. Did he go by Monty? Well, sorry. Are you being overly familiar? I, well, we were such good pals since I've got two of his books. <laughs> I, I may have, I think I have three. I, there's a witchcraft book as well that I'm pretty sure I own, but I couldn't find it before the interview. So I got a, the stack of two here. Um, but uh, who was Montague Summers and why should monster enthusiasts care about him? Summers is one of the really interesting characters, quirky characters of of English letters. Uh, He's an early 20th century author, and as you said, werewolves, witches, uh, a number of topics on the outre. And uh, he's just a fascinating character. He, He lived the life of... The thaumaturge. He liked being seen as this kind of slightly dangerous occult practitioner, uh, and he had this reputation. And he, people think he moved in circles, including Aleister Crowley and other members of the Golden Dawn, and uh, led this sort of extraordinary life. And uh, so, what are some of the books that Summers wrote? Well, of the of the books that are of interest to listeners of Monster Talk, uh, obviously The Werewolf is the one that jumps right out at you from 1933. Uh, but he does a series of books on witchcraft and demonology in the 20s, uh, a popular history of witchcraft in 1935. And what a lot of Summer's devotees or occult devotees don't realize is that he published far more on non-esoteric subjects. Uh, He was an expert on early British theater. Uh, He wrote books about uh, playwrights and poets and Shakespeare and the Marquis de Sade and others. His his uh, non-paranormal, if we want to use that term, non-paranormal writings far outweigh uh, his writings on sort of wacky topics. Not on my bookshelf. But. <laughs> <laughs> I 
did, well, you, did just have, you have to broaden your horizons. <laughs> did he uh, write novels or plays himself? He wrote a few plays. Mostly he translated plays. Speaking uh, of, if, yeah, this is a great link in to one of our questions. Uh, he translated the Witch Hunters, uh, the Malleus Maleficarum, if I'm saying that yes, right. Yes, the, the first one to do that. Yeah, into, into English, English, right? Right. So how did he get involved in that project? Did you look into that at all? Well, he doesn't really do anything occult-related publishing-wise uh, until the 1920s when he, he encounters a guy, C.K. Ogden, who was a famous editor for Routledge, and he had – uh, been the driving force behind this monumental series of books on the history of psychology. And he encounters Montague Summers and he asks him, will you write a book on witchcraft? Uh, you know, and, and Summers jumps all over this. And in 1926, he publishes or Routledge publishes uh, for him uh, the history of witchcraft and demonology, which is pretty much the first thing on the occult he ever writes. And then, and the next year, uh, this stuff sort of starts spilling out of him. Uh, the next year, 1927, he, he publishes The Geography of Witchcraft. And as I said before, then The Werewolf comes along in 33, then A Popular History of Witchcraft in 35. So, so, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no, you go for it. I, I was, was just going to ask the next question. He, he was, um, so towards the end of his life is when he starts being published in this field. Right, yes. But, but, but earlier, it seems like there's a lot of stories that he had a lifelong um involvement with that sort of thing right mostly stories yeah so okay what what the thing when i first started working on on his life um i just assumed i would start uncovering all this stuff about him you know black masses and alistair crowley and the golden dawn and 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 all this sort of thing but what i took from my work was he was not really an occultist at all. He was a performance artist. He, w- he engaged in a lifelong performance piece in which he portrayed himself as the magician. The reality is, though, there is absolutely no evidence that he ever actually engaged in any sort of operative occult activity. That's interesting. <laughs> Do you think he was it's a skeptic a or... No, well, I don't think he was a skeptic. I, the, there's there's a lot of discussion about his life as to whether – did he really believe or did he not believe in this stuff? And in a number of his writings, he says uh, – or he asks these sort of sly questions like, you know, can a, can a writer of ghost stories really write a good ghost story unless you believe ghosts are real? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Blake, I know you, wrote, you read The Werewolf. He makes it pretty clear – that he thinks werewolves are real. Oh, he's practically warning you. Like, look, <laughs> look at all this evidence I'm providing you. If if you're not really taking this seriously, well, you're a fool. You know. Yeah, and and in the and in in the, this wonderful way that amateur investigators have, which is a large part of what my whole professional career as a historian has been, looking at the relationship between professionals and amateurs. Oh, good mostly, point. Yeah, I can see what most, mostly in the yeah. realm of you know, like my book on on Grover Krantz, Searching for Sasquatch. The whole thing is this history of the relationship between 
uh, amateur practitioners and professional scholars. And the more you look at the amateur practitioners, they, they have this kind of charm to them. I'm not sure if charm is the right word, but this idea that they are the only ones who really know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That professional scholars, historians, scientists, they have no idea what they're doing. Their training sort of blinds them to you know, reality. And Summers uh, goes after historians saying uh, – you know, we're talking about werewolves and witches. He's saying these things are real. You historians discount this, but you discount it at your peril, and that's because you really don't know how to look at this material. Only someone like myself really knows how to look at this material. <laughs> so so let, this is like radio. Let, let's give the listeners a picture of what, what Montague Summers looks like because every, every photograph I've seen oh, uh, go is, Google is, him. is, is stunning. <laughs> we'll put something in the show notes, but I mean just – because he's not just portraying a character as an occult expert. I mean, he's also doing something with the church and and he his looks ha- medieval in his hair. His I don't. Can you talk clothing about that? in his hair? <laughs> yeah. Well, this 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 is why I argue that he's a performance artist, and and I mean he really commits to the role. Uh, right down to the way he acts, the way he behaves, the way he dresses. Uh, I. If you could imagine a kind of British Truman Capote. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Is it an, you know, the, a kind of affected way of speaking. And he, he wore his hair in a kind of, uh, you know, 17, what he thought was a 17th century style. He wore these sort of robes that were vaguely kind of religious, but they really were not based on any actual denomination. Yeah. Yeah, his hair looked like a wig. Yes, <laughs> like it, a, it, a he, he curled wig. it. Yes, he, he curled it as if it was a kind of, of judge's wig. And mm-hmm. I, I, like I said, like I keep saying, he, I, I believe he was having the time of his life portraying this character and getting a secret chuckle out of how people actually bought into it. <laughs> Fascinating. So you were uh, talking about his seeming religious uh, leanings and he didn't he fashion himself as a catholic priest and he called himself reverend but was he really ordained as a priest uh well there's some there's some speculation on that he's raised an anglican and uh he he goes to trinity college oxford between 1899 and 1903 and he's not a very good student he he graduates with a fourth which if you know anything about the the british higher education system, a first is like top honors, mm-hmm. uh, a first level degree. A fourth is like you've barely, barely passed. Yeah. It's like you, you know, the like school a, is like a C minus. Yeah. The, the, basically the school is saying, you know, in here, here in the States, in the Ivy league, they talk about the gentleman C, <laughs> you know, you really, you really shouldn't have graduated but they don't want to make a big deal about it. You paid your so tuition. Pay for it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> They're going to give you this and say thank you very much and send you on your way. And that's what a fourth is. Mm-hmm. Um, so he doesn't he doesn't excel academically in school. He he sort of shows that behavior not unusual for really creative people where 
they have difficulty or no interest in doing uh, academic work in the classroom, mm-hmm. yet outside of the classroom, they do this incredibly creative uh, work. I mean, if, if you read his books, they're very well researched. You know, he had trained himself to be a really assiduous researcher. Um, you in know, a I, time when that meant going to libraries and asking for books and looking around and finding links in books that maybe didn't have references, and oh, it must have been yeah, not going to Wikipedia. I mean, it, it <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. I am in awe of the number of references he includes. It's well, astonishing. He, like I said, he goes to he's a student at Oxford. And if you know anything about Oxford, all the different colleges have their own in-house libraries. And then, of course, there's the Bodleian, which is the sort of the central library of Oxford University. And their collection of rare manuscripts and esoteric books and rare books is, is really just phenomenal. I mean, I've been there a number, a number of times myself uh, to do research. I did research there for, for the – the uh, Sasquatch book. I did research there for the Jersey Devil book. I just got back a couple of weeks ago from there doing research on the Columbus book I'm working on. And so he has direct access to all of this. And he's just there every day grinding through this really sort of obscure material. And that's what a historian is supposed to do. That's what the mm-hmm. job is. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm completely jealous of you and me. Uh, yeah. Him. <laughs> That's uh, you know, that, some people go on vacation to Disney World. I go on vacation to libraries. I, well, I've told I've I've really wanted to go to England for a long time, but I told my wife I said the thing is I would need to basically have two, like double the vacation because half of it I just want to go to the libraries, right? Mm-hmm. I mean for sure that's it's that's there's something wrong with me, uh, but <laughs> well, luckily my my partner Doctor Botts. Uh, Dr. Lisa, she's also a historian, and she, she yeah, that's things. right, right, exactly. That's great and, and completely convenient. Uh, and, and my wife's not against it; it's just she just knows she also wants to do lots of other things. So well, the kids might be. They would be against it, right? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we're talking about uh, Summer's religion. Yes. So he he begins as an Anglican, and in 1908 he gets made a deacon of the Anglican Church. And a deacon is sort of the lowest level uh, the lowest level official member of the church other than simply a layperson. Okay. And this is around the time he gets involved in in some sort of controversy. I I've I've tried to track this down. The the sources, the paperwork um, is rather elusive, but he somehow winds up being charged with some sort of sexual impropriety. That's a well. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> the, you know, people have speculated and often said, "Well, it was with little boys, and was this, was that." Choir boys. But yeah. There, but there's. Uh, I haven't been able to find any real hardcore evidence of this. Now, do you suspect you cover up? <laughs> Well, it's terrible. I, I should not even laugh at that. But it's, it's it has been a while. Uh, but his, yeah, yeah. His his sexual orientation is also something of a mystery, and I think because I always try to look for the simplest, most human explanation for things, and I think he just had fun letting people think whatever they wanted and then kind of, you know, smiling or, you know, finger to the nose or, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and just letting people create whatever 
a persona they thought he should have, and he just mm-hmm. sat back and enjoyed it. Uh, but after that, he become he converts and becomes a Catholic, and he becomes a Catholic deacon. He wants to be a priest, but the the church in in Bristol where he is, Bristol, England, they won't make him a priest, and so he goes to Italy and he finds some cardinal. Uh, who himself is a bit on the shady side, who is willing to make him or ordain him a priest. Mm-hmm. And whether it actually happens or not, there, one of the problems with doing proper research into Montague Summer's life is that a lot of the paperwork is missing. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you really have to I the work I found the letters I found I ha- I found in really sort of odd places I went looking in publishers archives and that's where I found a lot of stuff um, Georgetown University in Washington has a collection that they acquired a couple of years ago which I've been trying to get into uh, but. One of the problems is with archives is when they acquire a collection of anybody's papers. It's not like when if they you know the truck backs up on Monday with boxes of stuff and Tuesday you can go in and look at it. Right, right. It has to be gone through. It has to be cataloged. Uh, you know, it has to be put in proper folders and boxes so it won't deteriorate. And so it takes some time. Uh, but there, I've seen a couple of things from this, and one of them is supposedly his ordination papers making him a Catholic priest. But in the end, he does this very Montague Summers thing. If becoming a priest is really difficult and you want to be a priest, just call yourself a priest. <laughs> and that's that. Yeah. That's a very modern thing to do. <laughs> yeah, why well, go through all the trouble? Just call yourself a priest. Are you a priest? Yeah, of course I am. Uh, I have the hat. I got the hat. Yeah. I got the outfit. And the hair. Yeah. I the, yeah, I got the whole thing, so now I'm a priest. Now, whether he was actually literally ordained a priest or not, that's that's up for grabs. But mm. like I said, well, you know, why bother to why bother to go through all the trouble when you can just call yourself the thing mm-hmm. you want to be? So but he, he was never assigned a parish or anything. Oh like no, that. no, of course so, not. So, but he, but he, maybe he held religious. Craggy Island. Yeah, yeah. I, he was he was a generally spiritual guy. You know, I think he really did believe in the stuff, um, but he was using it to his advantage. He was creating a character. Yeah. That is fascinating. I wonder what, the, what uh, did you get any insight into what he wanted from that? Because it seemed like he also wanted very much to be paid for uh, his work as an author. Yeah, well, that's one yeah. of the things yeah. that 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 I came across. One of the things that I argue in my research is that he's a writer. He's a professional writer. He makes his living as a writer, and if Writing books on werewolves and witches will advance his position. That's what he'll do. Uh, The vast majority of the correspondence that I was able to find has nothing to do with the occult whatsoever. Absolutely nothing. It's all about him pestering his publishers for advances. He had had this 
way of doing things. And, and, and anybody who's listened to this who is a writer will recognize this life immediately. He goes to a publisher. He says, I got an idea for a book. They say, okay, great. That sounds terrific. He says, okay, let me have an advance. They give him an advance expecting him to go off and write the book. He then goes to another publisher, gives them another idea for a book, and asks for an advance. And they ah. give him an advance. <laughs> then he goes back to the first publisher, and he says, you know, I'm working on this book, and it's coming along nicely, but I, you know, it costs me money to go do all this research. Could you advance me some more money? <laughs> and for a while, they'll do it. Uh, the... He, he publishes a lot of his work with an outfit called Keegan Paul, which eventually become, gets bought out by Routledge. And as time goes by, these letters from the publisher start to get really uh, – they get an edge to them because he keeps hitting them up for money and they keep saying, wait, dude, where's these books? <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. There was a point at which he had like a half a dozen contracts from Routledge and hadn't turned in a single manuscript. Mm-hmm. And he just keeps asking them for money and he's living off of this and he has this perfectionist's approach to writing. I mean, he is a really hard worker. It's not that he takes this money and then just goes and lies on the beach somewhere. He really puts a huge amount of effort into his writing, but he is tracking down these these incredibly obscure sources and it takes time and the publishers are like looking at their watches saying where are these books two years have gone by three years have gone by we keep giving you money and you're not giving us any books back uh and and you know eventually he he does produce things um but the 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 publisher starts saying, no, we're not going to give you any more money until you start putting some of these books in. Rowledge, at one point, he's got so many contracts open with them, they just want something. And they, they say, look, we'll cancel these three contracts. Just focus – like the, the book that becomes the popular history of witchcraft, which comes out in 1935, they wanted him to do – a popular version because the the ones he did in the twenties were very scholarly, and they had they they had high regard you know great critical successes, but they didn't really the publisher felt they didn't really appeal to a popular market, so they say look write us another book, but write it for a popular market. Don't make it so long. Don't use so many uh, uh, technical terms. He loves to make up words. <sighs> <laughs> his, his books are full of words that he himself makes up. And they say, look, cut back on it a little bit. It'll sell really well, and everybody's happy. And so he starts writing it, and of course he asks for more money up front. And about halfway through the project, without telling the publisher, he changes it from being a book for a popular audience back into a scholarly book. And the publishers just go crazy. They say, look, we don't want a scholarly book. We want a popular book. And he gets like petulant like a, like a little kid and stomps his foot. You know, I, I can't believe you're treating me this way. And, you know, I thought you respected me. And uh, it, it's really quite humorous but in a way a little sad and a little tragic to sure. see this guy uh, 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 reacting like this. And so his, his whole – He's got two things in his life. He wants to 
portray himself as this character, this mysterious character. Could be a priest, could be an alchemist, could be a magician. Yeah. You know, we don't know. We'll let you decide. And he's a writer who needs to make money off of his writing. Mm-hmm. And most of the correspondence that you find deals with him trying to you know, doing this dance with these publishers who they want the manuscripts and he wants more money out of them. Mm-hmm. And wasn't he handwriting everything too? He didn't yeah, use a typewriter? Other, that was the other problem. He, he says, I hate typewriters. I don't like typewriting. And uh, so he, he insists on sending them these boxes with these thick reams of manuscript. And the publisher, you know, you, it's, it's difficult or impossible to tell from a manuscript uh, how many pages that will translate into once it's typeset. And so, so they would tell him, look, uh, keep the 60,000 words. And he'd say, okay. And then he'd send this giant box with this manuscript in it, which they would have to then send out to a typesetter who would have to do a typescript. And only then would the publisher realize – not only is it not 60,000 words, it's 90,000 words, and so they have to get him to cut it down to 60,000 words, which he doesn't want to do because <laughs> he feels every single word needs to be in there. And so this fight starts, uh, and so it would take years for these books to come out. And and it's not like he's just writing prose. There's huge sections of Greek and Latin in them. Yes, right. <laughs> giant, trans, giant passages translated from – uh, from Greek and Latin, or not translated? Or not translated? <laughs> That's what I found frustrating. Uh, and and you're if you're if you're an intelligent person who's reading these books, you should just know how to read Latin and Greek. Yes, the literally in his own of, language, right? right the, the dozens of readers who are clamoring for these. Books. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but they're awesome. I mean, they're really. I mean, they really are really really great books for collecting all of this uh, minutia and and obscure. Uh, reference material. But they're great source books. Yeah, they are tremendous source books, but a little frustrating. Right. So he never ended up writing anything that was really popular? Well, The Werewolf was pretty popular, and and the the one that finally comes out in 35, the one that he you know, the one that they wanted a popular book, that finally comes out as a popular history of witchcraft. um, Which is the one that he thinks... Uh, filmmakers are using as source material for movies about vampires and witches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I re- I was unclear. Did he have any particular reason, or was he just seeing material that looked familiar to what he had written? Because if you're writing a book about vampires and witches, and then you see a movie, and they've done any research at all, there's going to be some parallels. I just was wondering. Right. Yeah. It, it, you know, he 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 contacts Keegan Paul and says, "Look, these movies are coming out." Excuse me. Uh, and they're using my material. Let's piggyback off these films and we can get more people to buy the book. And and the publishers basically said, yeah, 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 whatever, whatever, and never really followed it up. And he, that really frustrated him. Which could – you know, they do that all the time now, right? Sure. So, so he may be a little ahead of his time on that one. Yeah, and, and copyright law in England is a little different from copyright law here in the States. No doubt. It's it's a little easier to take people's work, or at least it was back then. Um, but it's easier to sue them if you don't like what they say about you as well. <laughs> oh yeah, but it's harder to prove. Yeah, yeah. 
It's easier to prove here in the States than it is in England. Uh, there was just – I don't know if you followed the whole Holy Blood, Holy Grail uh, controversy with Dan Brown and the and uh, Da Vinci Code. The guys who wrote Holy Blood, Holy Grail sued Dan Brown saying you just copied what we did and kind of fictionalized it. And they went to trial and they lost. Right. And uh, wasn't uh, Summers a little jealous of Dracula when it came out and felt that he could have written it better? Or Well, Dracula comes out in, what is it, 1880-something, wasn't it? 80-something, yeah. yeah. So that's, he, he's still a kid yeah. when, when that comes out. Oh, okay, because I'd read somewhere that uh, someone had said that about him. But, but he, he accrues a lot of story. I mean, this guy is like... Uh, like a flypaper for stories. I mean, the, I, the the stuff about the occult material, for example, just there's way more stories than there is evidence that they're true. Yes, yeah, like yes. this whole the whole relationship uh, or supposed relationship between Summers and, and Aleister Crowley. Um, they did know each other. Well, let me let's, let's before we get into that, let's talk uh, about. We keep using the word occult. Can we talk okay. about what that means? Sure. Well, the term occult. <laughs> In its most basic definition is simply things unseen, things hidden. Um, it's usually put down to things that can only be seen in a certain way. And that has kind of evolved into this uh, supernatural connotation. And the the definition of a cult has changed over the years. It's it, it, it's been right, rather right. fluid. It, it's especially growing up in the south of the United States. A cult here means more like focusing on the black lasso. magic. Black, yeah, more right, like yeah. cult than occult. In, in, the, in, in certain in certain corners uh, of the states, uh, particularly below the Mason Dixon line, if that's not too in, you know. Telling, I think uh, that's about right. But I mean, it's, it's uh, more like, it, it, but it could be like occluded or blocked, right? Like, right, exactly, right, exactly. Right. Uh, in 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 places here in the states, people hear the word occult and they instantaneously think devil worship, Satan, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all the all the darker, worst aspects of the supernatural. But it could be also referring, I guess, by this definition, the, the original meaning things like. Uh, not necessarily a cult, uh, or not necessarily, not necessarily cultists, but like a secret societies that are just social societies but private would be using a cult. Would they be considered a cult? Like the, uh, I, I suppose you could. The, yeah. the, the definition can be made pretty elastic. Or would it be more like things like um, oh, cabalism, where it's, it's numeric, you know, it's secrets, hidden knowledge, hidden secrets, that kind of thing. Right, yeah. Well, I mean, you could sort of loosely put the Kabbalah under that, but you could also put uh, Rosicrucianism under there, sure. masonry yeah. under there, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean it mean that the practitioners, practitioners are trying to call up Satan. No, 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 right, exactly, although, right, right. Although was, in many people's minds, that's exactly what it means. Right, right. both of those things are true. That I guess the, the more... Uh, uh, the dictionary meaning, although is anything more democratized than language? I mean, what a word means at a given time is really right, hard exactly. to keep track of. So mm-hmm. it's, it's nice that Not we've changes. come up with dictionaries, right? But it's very fluid, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so uh, Summers was seen as an expert in the occult, but was he actually involved in the occult then? Not, I've never been able to find anything. He 
he did sort of move through the more fashionable uh, occult circles of the early 20th century. Uh, There's this period that some historians refer to as the occult revival. Uh, This is a – I'm not even sure if movement is the right word to use, but an interest in the occult, which kind of springs up in certain British social circles in the late 19th and into the early 20th century, sort of into the interwar years. Complementary to the rise of spiritualism? Yeah, um, and it's it, it it has a lot more to do with fashion and a kind of fashionable occultism rather okay. than anything really hardcore. You know, if 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 you wanted to be with the in crowd, if you were a uh, a British socialite in the twenties and you really wanted to be on the cutting edge of the in crowd, you'd hang out with some of these occult people because mm-hmm. they dressed in sort of wacky clothes and they had these kind of secret dealings and it was all very mysterious and they used they sort of resurrected Egyptian imagery and combined it with Babylonian imagery or or what they thought was Egyptian and Babylonian imagery and it had a kind of romantic fashionable dangerousness to it. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Okay. Yeah. So and I think we've kind of touched on that a little bit on the show, talking about... Uh, Blavatsky and the rise of uh, right. She was part of that. Yeah, the Golden Dawn. All those guys, uh, McGregor, Mathers, Alistair Crowley. That whole crowd was part of this kind of fashionable circle of of uh, kind of elitist 
intellectuals. And since we're kind of giving context to a story which may not have a lot to it, but I still want to make sure we understand why it's important that we talk about it. Let's assume some of our listeners don't know who Aleister Crowley is. Can you talk about him a little bit? Sure. Aleister Crowley is the – he's the poster boy for the early 20th century occult practitioner. He was this guy who gets very much into being uh, an actual practitioner of magical operative practices. Uh, where Summers is a bit of a dilettante. He wants to look like he's doing this stuff. Uh, Aleister Crowley really wants to do it. He thinks he is actually performing magic and contacting spirits. And he is in touch with the astral spheres and the, and the, and the music of eternity. And he gains this kind of reputation as a sort of a cult guru and he experiments with drugs and he has wild sex parties and he travels around the world getting into or getting up to all sorts of wacky uh, occult related hijinks and he gains quite a public reputation as a kind of sinister practitioner. Uh, he's called the, the wickedest man in the world and the beast. And like Summers, he kind of gets off on it. He likes people thinking of him in this way. Uh, in the end, I always thought of Crowley as a kind of sad, pathetic, tragic figure. Yeah. You know, a guy, he, you know, a, a, um, a drug addict. Uh, got a, he's got a half a dozen STDs. Uh, you know, he's involved with several sort of sad uh, suicides of women who fell in love with him, but he rejected. Uh, it, you know, it, it it looked very it looks very sort of appealing on the surface, but if you look at the deeper story, it's it's really sort of sad and pathetic. But he it's, also reminded me a little bit of, uh, I guess the the. I don't. I guess the best way, but it's sort of an occult uh, Kardashian. Yeah. Uh, well, he, in that he actually does something. Well, he does something. Well, okay. He's he's famous for doing something, and he actually right. he's not famous for not doing anything. Yeah. But I, I mean, he but he's, he's very well known. He's in the papers. he's a media character. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's written about in the tabloids. You know, exactly. people know the name. Right. He's he's yeah. He's, People people know much more about his antics than his real life. Right. right. People right. want him to be a, you know, if you were if you were a wealthy London socialite uh, and you were throwing a party, you wanted to invite Aleister Crowley. You know, I think there are parallels with Anton LaVey as well, a little bit. Oh, yeah. sure. He's probably modeling himself after Aleister right. Crowley. Well, I mean, any, anybody in the 20th century and 21st century, um, whether they – realize it or not, or whether they acknowledge it or not, the model for that sort of character is Aleister Crowley. Mm-hmm. It is an astonishing tale. So I guess the question is, we've kind of hinted at this a couple of times or, or talked about it, but Summers is alleged to have had some connection to Crowley. Yeah. Do you think that comes from, but you didn't find anything to support that. So You kind that, of hear on some levels that they were really close, and then you hear that they just yeah. knew each other as acquaintances. So is that yeah, Summers I, I, trying to like ride the coattails? Or is well, that, I'm not sure yeah. if that's the case. As there is very, as it's very difficult to find, see, as a historian, my first instinct is always to ask, where are the papers? 
Yes. Where are the letters? Where are the notebooks? Where is the written material? Uh, and with Summers, that mater- there isn't much of it, or at least there isn't much of it that's accessible. Crowley, on the other hand, uh, there's a huge amount of material on him. Lots of his letters, lots of his uh, notes, and, and, and you know, there's a lot of things of his that he wrote down which have been saved, and there are whole archives full of Crowley material. And I wanted to see, you know, what is what was this relationship? Was this relationship actually something in the way that people thought? And so I started hunting down Crowley correspondence, and I, I made contact with some Crowley scholars, and I said, you know, I'm looking for anything where where uh, Montague Summers is mentioned, and I only ever found one diary entry where Crowley says, you know, oh, I had dinner with this very interesting guy, Montague Summers, and there is an early biography of – Crowley, um, by uh, oh the author's name it just flew right out of my head, um, but it's a it's a fairly well known biography of Crowley in which he talks about the relationship between these two guys because he knew both of them, and he talks about one and only one time they met for dinner. Uh, a, a sort of sophisticated soiree where they exchange, where Crowley and and uh, Summers exchanged. Was it interesting? Sorry, was I'm it, sorry. Was it Camel? Yes, that's the one. Okay, cool. And they have this rather interesting, fascinating evening, having dinner and sitting in front of a fire and sipping cognac and trying to impress each other, and that's pretty much it. Uh, you can't find any other references. I mean, maybe somebody out there has this material. I'd love to see it. Uh, you know, if anybody who hears this says, "Oh no, you don't know what you're talking about. I know where this is." You know, let me know. Uh, <laughs> but I wasn't able to find anything other than this. And they I lived. They lived right near each other too. Yeah, they, they did. They lived in Richmond, a neighborhood in London called Richmond, very sort of Tony neighborhood. And but I don't think they really spent much time with each other. I think they they respected each other as sort of fellow flaunters of convention. <laughs> sure. You know, they they enjoyed each other because they saw sort of a kindred spirit in each other as as guys who liked to be in the limelight, like to be talked about, like to do outrageous stuff. You mean so today they would be two thin young gentlemen wearing trilby hats with outrageous mustaches passing each other on the street? <laughs> yeah, saying, you know, nice outfit, dude. You know. Two hipsters. Yeah, yeah. And the one time that in in Summers' writings, the one time he mentions Crowley, it's not very flattering. Um, Crowley had been asked by a group in Oxford to come and give a talk on this historical figure named Gilles de Ray, who was a, a friend of Joan of Arc. He was accused of being a serial child murderer and, you know, up to, you know, no good in the dark. And it was at, wound up being burned at the stake for, you know, various different horrifying crimes. And they asked Crowley to talk, give a talk about this guy. And, and Crowley agreed and so they they started putting out 
uh, advertisements. You know, Aleister Crowley's going to talk. You know, come here. This very and, and it was made to sound like this was going to be a very racy kind of titillating talk about the darker aspects of human life and the occult. And the Oxford fathers got nervous and canceled the talk and said, you know, we don't don't want this guy coming and talking about this. And so Crowley decides to write his talk out as a pamphlet and have that published and people could read it that way. And so people are very interested in seeing this, you know, reading this. Everybody wants to get a hold of a copy of this. And it finally comes out, and Summers gets a hold of a copy of it and reads it, and he's a little disappointed in it. And he says that you know people bought this with great expectation, and it turned out to be incredibly dull. <laughs> so wow. that was meant to be the very talk that he was going to give? Supposedly, yes. Right. Uh, and so they, you know, basically saying, "Oh, we're waiting for this guy, this, you know, this occultist, this, you know, the great beast, the, you know, six six six, the wickedest man in the world." And what do we get? We get this dull, dry thing that is completely uninteresting. And that's basically the only references I could find in Summers' work to Crowley. Yeah, not very flattering. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Outside of this uh, occult material, you said he was also interested in um, theater. Did, yes, I think I read that he had also established some theaters himself. That-, uh, that I'm not sure about. Okay, Crowley and he both. Uh, he sought to shock people. So sure, it, I don't know mm-hmm. how much is true of what's out there. Right. But well, uh, again, I think the difference between the two is that they both enjoyed shocking people. They both enjoyed people thinking them involved in this sort of wacky behavior, but Crowley actually went and did this stuff, whereas I think, from what I can tell, Summers really doesn't engage in much of that at all. Just the suggesting to people that he can or that he has done it. Well, kind of an intriguing detail is is when Summers died, I guess – his secretary, uh, uh, who had been, I, I, I couldn't tell, uh, Hector Stuart Forbes, did he live with him? Or, I'm not sure about that. But but they were buried in the same grave. And I didn't know if that was for Man econo- servant. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't know, right? Exactly. I didn't know if that was for economic reasons or because they had a strong relationship or that's just where they put him. I didn't, <laughs> do you know anything right. about that? No, I'm, I, I'm not really sure. Again, his his sexuality is, is as ambiguous historically speaking, as his occult activity. Sure. Now, there may very well be material out there which shows that he really was doing all this stuff, uh, but I could never find any of it. And as I said, all the material, there's, there's, there's a lot of material in him talking to his publishers, and in none of it does he ever mention anything uh, about the occult or the outre. He's, he is focused on... Have you published my book yet? Where are my royalties? Uh, Can you give me some more advances? Can you give me another contract? This is what he's focused on. So, Mm -hmm. do do we have any recordings of his voice or any any kind of film of him at all? Not that I'm aware of. There's there are a few photographs. There's a famous caricature of him that showed up in one of the gossip magazines while he was alive. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any recorded material. That would be great if there was. Yeah. 
But yeah, this was a long time ago, but I imagine having your caricature show up in the newspaper is probably like getting a really popular retweet today, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's like being on, you know, on the on the tabloid TV shows. Sure, sure. It's, it's so funny how things have not changed that much, but uh, I, I, or it could have been really offensive too. Well, that's true too. Yeah. So, I, yeah, you could be, you know, if you didn't want it to be in there, but it seems like he liked attention. So mm-hmm. I'm just making yeah. the assumption, but. I, it's it's fascinating as a historian when you when you have a character like this. There's so many questions, but so little hard evidence. I guess am I right in thinking the best you can do is document that which is documentable, and then hope that that pushes the the story forward a bit, and someone follows along if they find something new. Is that the way it works? Sure, sure. That's that's usually what we're trying to do. I mean, you can you can extrapolate certain behaviors, certain events. Uh, you try not to go too far. Yeah. Uh, as a historian, you try not to go too far with it. Um, you, you know, because after all, historians are storytellers. That's what I do for a living. I tell stories. Uh, but the difference between a historian and a novelist is a novelist isn't constrained by <laughs> exactly. having to stick to the facts. And I say that I don't say that in a in a in a an insulting way. Uh, I mean, I wish I was a novelist. It's a dis- I, yeah, it's a distinction. It's much it's more freeing. Right, yeah. But I, I have to stick to the facts. I have to stick to the evidence. And I can, uh, you know, I like to try to make the lives of the people I'm writing about come to life, as it were. And so you do present the material in a way that's engaging and interesting and you try to create a narrative that will get people's attention and you can you can go a certain way out on a uh, out on a limb as long as you have a good amount of material to basically back that up if you're sort of adding color to the person's life but in the end you really you, you know you, you're constrained by the evidence you have and you can't really make up stuff you can tell the folklore, right? But, but yeah, you can talk about like with the with the, my Jersey Devil book, which is coming out later this year. Thought I'd throw a plug in for that. You should you should? Uh, you know the the you know we talked about this the the was it the last time I was on? Yes, talking about the Jersey Devil and the life of Daniel Leeds. Um, Daniel Leeds is the centerpiece of this story. And so I try to tell his story as a way of telling the story of the Jersey Devil. And I strove to make this – I didn't want it to be just sort of a dull biography. You know, on Monday this happened. Then on Tuesday that happened. And on Wednesday that happened. I wanted to try to make this person come back to life a little bit. Exactly, exactly. And so you try to set up images and a narrative uh, that will take the reader through the story and learn something and gain some insight. Um, that, but, you know, we dug, we dug up huge amounts of material that no one had ever looked at before. But still, even then, I mean, you can't ever really know. I mean, there are, there are a few people in history, uh, Napoleon, Hitler, mm-hmm. uh, Darwin, uh, Isaac Newton, you know, and, and a few others where we we have – just painfully excruciating detail, sure. almost on a minute-by-minute minute point. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are people who we have hardly any of, uh, mm-hmm. important characters that we have very little. Uh, you know, 
I don't want to get too far away from Summers, but in, in, in the work I did on Daniel Leeds, this was a guy who was at the center of colonial New Jersey and the, and the activity going on. There is not a single surviving letter of his. Oh, my gosh. And, and he – and he was, you know, a, a, a publisher. Say, right, he was a publisher. He, he, that is astonishing. <laughs> Ironic. Yeah, he, would have, he would have been corresponding with lots of people, yet they're not that we ever found. I mean, we dug everywhere. And I right. mean, th- that doesn't mean there isn't anything. That doesn't mean there is no material on Montague Summers where he writes about his, you know, his sexual being or whether he's actually, you know, trying to cavort with spirits. Uh, but th- that material either never existed, was destroyed, which is something which happens, unfortunately, uh, or is out there and is is lost somewhere or somebody has it and it's hidden. When I was writing the book about Grover Krantz and all the Sasquatch hunters, I ran into people all the time who said, oh, you know, I have letters of Rennie DeHinden and I have letters of this person. I have letters of that person. I said, fantastic. Can I come and look at them? No. Uh, yeah, really. Uh, you know, and it's hugely frustrating because, you, you, as a scholar, you say, "Why can't I see this material?" Yeah, you know? share it. Yeah, uh, and you know, a lot of stuff is in that. That's why there are so few books like this on UFO hunters, on ghost hunters, on on monster hunters, because professional historians like myself, they want to see these original primary sources because that's what you build history on. And there isn't a lot of – I found stuff that nobody even knew existed in, in libraries and archives and museums. But a lot of material in the – oh, let's just call it the history of the paranormal is in the hands of private people. It mm-hmm. never made it into an archive. It never made it into a library or into a museum uh, file cabinet. And some people were very nice and let me look at stuff. A lot of them just said, no, you're one of those eggheads. You're not going to – you're going to write bad stuff about my hero. I'm not going to let you look at it in this material. Wow. And you were saying earlier too that uh, some of the materials about Summers have gone missing. Do you think it's possible in future we could find more about him then? Sure. Of course it's possible. I certainly hope so. Right. Uh, you know, he's an interesting guy. He lives at a at a, 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 a kind of historical juncture or junction where a lot of the, a lot of uh, sort of occult activity is going on, and uh, you know he sees a lot of it. Whether he's actually pra- practicing is another question. But he's around it. He knows these people. He talks to them. Uh, it, it would be it would be it would fill a number of gaps in the the history of the occult of the early 20th century of the West, if we had more of his material. I, I, I just, well, let's hope uh, it turns up. This is a speculative question, but as a historian, what do you think about the way that all the correspondence is going digital? It seems like we are going to have this weird situation where we're going to have incredible amounts of documentation about the movements, behaviors, and correspondence of people, yet at the same time, it's all hidden behind a digital wall, and I'm not sure if legislation or anything will allow people to get access to that material. Yeah, well, that's a huge issue that's that's discussed a lot in my discipline. Uh, I teach, along with the courses on on pseudoscience and monsters and things, I teach courses on historiography for our students. Uh, historiography is the practice of history. 
It's the study of history. It's not history itself. And one of the big questions that is increasingly worrying people like me is that nobody's writing – not nobody, but very few people are actually writing letters anymore or keeping notebooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're doing it all electronically. And what's going to happen to all those tweets? What's going to happen to all those emails? Can we – can historians gain access to this material? Uh, I have in my own collection, I have letters from the 16th century that I can look at. I can read and I can hold and I've, and I've gone to libraries around the world where I've held you know, ancient cuneiform tablets in my hand mm-hmm. that you can still read. I can't read – I'm, I'm sitting in my office here uh, – and staring at a pile of floppy disks, which I can't read anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And they're five years old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, can, I can read a book that was published by Gutenberg, but I can't read a disk that I recorded five years ago. Mm. It is, it's a fascinating quandary. And, and I, unfortunately, probably we need to keep moving on because we're running out of time. But the... That that if uh, someone wanted to learn more about that, I, I guess they could uh, attend courses at Kane University. They could, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I want to mention that we're working on something I'm very excited about, which is a, a live episode of Monster Talk, where we'll use something. I think we're going to use Google Hangouts, and you've uh, tentatively agreed to join us for that to talk yes. about our first episode on. Looking the Yeti. forward to it. Yeah, I think it's going to be a hoot. Uh, it's and a Yeti Palooza. Exactly. <laughs> I'm <laughs> really excited about it. So we'll get the uh, dates and times out that for that as, as soon as we can get them all coordinated. But I'm hoping mm-hmm. to get that hopefully done sometime maybe in September, worst case, yep. early early October. But I'd really like to get that done. I think that would be really great. Maybe we could do four of those a year. I'd be happy. Uh, <laughs> but your book that prompted me to inquire about that is your Searching for Sasquatch book, Um which is now out in paperback, which means instead of being uh, almost $100, it's fairly affordable. Right. It's, I think it's like 25 Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. I think that's a excellent. Uh, if you're interested in Bigfoot or Sasquatch and want to know more about its context in how studies of that animal, if it is an animal, happen, I, I can't recommend this book enough. Thanks. I, I um, There's a number of... There's been more good writing on cryptozoology in the last couple of years, uh, but if I if if I may say such a thing, mine is the best history of cryptozoology currently available. It's pretty awesome. I, I it is really good and uh, and now affordable. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Well, that's the problem with being a, a scholar. You know, you, the, a lot of these publishers they put stuff out that's really expensive. Oh, yeah, you've got. Mm-hmm. A, Tell a, me about it. You've got <laughs> several books that I want to have in my collection that I simply can't afford right now. But we're working on that too. Um, uh, we'll, we, we're going to be putting some things in, in in the episodes now, where maybe listeners who want to support the show can help us pay for some of these expensive books. <laughs> well, hopefully, the the Jersey Devil book. It will come. I'm hoping, fingers crossed, um, will come out initially as a paperback or a paperback in addition to the hardcover. That would be awesome. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it'll be tentatively titled Satan's Harbinger. 
Okay. All right. <laughs> and it's coming out with uh, Johns Hopkins University Press. We, uh, my, I keep saying we, my co-author, um, Professor Frank J. Esposito, and I wrote this together. Uh, he's a terrific scholar of New Jersey and, and Native American history. And we both, uh, a couple of years ago, were, were talking and simultaneously said, let's write a book about the Jersey Devil together. And we got – we ended up getting three – contract offers and we went with Johns Hopkins neat and so we're hoping it's in the editing stage now uh, and we're hoping that it comes out either the end of this year or spring of 17 nice well obviously uh, keep us surprised and we'll keep the listeners surprised sure yeah and do we have time for a final question sure so we've asked you several times about your favorite monster we thought we'd ask you Slightly different question okay. tonight, uh, today. So, what's your favorite monster film? Oh, wh- wow, that's tough. Uh, <laughs> them. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I actually have, and I'm staring at it as I speak, an original poster that I got in, I, I bought out of the back of a comic book in 1977. A three by four foot black and white poster of the Beast from Twenty Thousand Fathoms, which I have framed. Nice. My son would be jealous. I, I'm jealous too, but he's a big Harryhausen fan. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Okay. Let's see that. Them. Um, oh, the best worst monster movie of all time, Reptilicus. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that's. Uh, uh, is it? Is it Swedish? Danish. Danish. Okay. The only Danish monster movie ever made. Which makes it the best Danish monster movie. <laughs> it's, really. it's fantastic. I love it. It's, it's wonderfully cheesy. Uh, and the story behind it is really fascinating. And so I'll, I'll go with that too. Uh, let's see. Any others? Um, the Giant Mantis. That was a good one. Any of those 50s bug movies? Yeah, yeah. We, the PEMs, the bug-eyed monsters. Yeah, that's fine. I'm sure Blake's seen good. them all. I have seen them <laughs> yeah. all. I own them all. I'm a, well, I'm you know, a, you, the, the, for my money, them is simply the best monster movie ever made. Oh, do you know what horrifies or dis- disappoints me so much is that while the principles were alive, but, but special effects had advanced, they didn't do a, a sequel where they just picked up the story with the same characters, at least included, right? I right. Mean, I, I well, you know the 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 in the the ant the ants aren't you know by 2016 standards the ants are a little cheesy, but they were smart enough not to show you too much of them. Oh, and it's it, yeah they the off the sound effects. Um, yeah, having, I saw it when I first saw it when I was a kid. Uh, it, it freaked me out. You know that sound yeah, that they the, use for the ants. I, And you know what's great? I I, I got a little uh, – because I get overboard with these things. I gave a paper at a pop culture conference once on them, and I said them is a film noir detective movie where the gangsters are replaced by ants. 
that, that's a good interpretation. Yeah, and, and I mean, the visuals, the, the construction of the story, the narrative, it's a, it's a film noir detective film, but with giant ants. Yeah, and you've got instead of uh, uh, G-Men, you've got uh, a scientist with the army trying to track it down. Right. Well, you got the you got the state trooper and, and the state the trooper in the beginning, yeah. Fed, the, the FBI guy and then the um the the sort of doddering doctor. Yeah, and his and beautiful his daughter. Yes. Hot daughter. <laughs> Ah, I'll have to say this. <laughs> oh, it's a good one. I- it's 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 great. It's it's good on every level. It's serious, but it's not. Oh ridiculous. yeah, the, it's got one of the best introductions of any horror film. I mean, just right. the, the the little girl is fantastic, and and, uh, and it it it's 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 got an almost documentary style mm-hmm. as as they uh and and they they deal with the ants as though they're very realistically right. uh treat like it's not they're not magic ants yes they're big but but they behave like ants and that's right. horrifying right. if you happen to be sure the small one right and you know i don't want to i don't i don't want to i don't want to do a spoiler it, alert although the movie came out in 1955 you, you should have seen it right? by now but but yeah but the but the scene where they get the title from uh when the doctor the 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 professor has a has a oh, an inkling of why this girl is yeah. you know is and he he does this thing and her reaction is like you know it's like it's wow chilling. This, this is a, how is a scene like this in a cheap 50s science fiction movie this is a scene out of a well-made top grade film it is it is absolutely chilling what happens in that scene. I don't want to say anything else about it, but it is Yeah, don't tell me. Yeah, it is it is really <laughs> really good. And because you, at some point you're like, well, how scary could it be? It's giant ants. When you're not seeing the giant ants, but you're seeing how people react and the people right. reacting are doing it right. It's really creepy. It's and I read a little piece yeah. of trivia somewhere and I'm not sure how accurate this is, but in the original screenplay, the ants don't go to Los Angeles. They go to Newark. Now that's funny. What? <laughs> and they're in the, and they're in the sewers of Newark. But I think when the production people sat down to try to take the screenplay and make it into a film, the Los Angeles has these huge underground, uh, a huge underground sewer system that you can drive vehicles through. Yeah, it's, it's so large. Yeah. and and Newark has sort of typical. Uh, storm drains and sewers that you can't get vehicles into, and so for the so the drama of the thing, they decided to go to Los Angeles because you could get you could cram more Marines down into the well, exactly into it, sewers this, in Los Angeles than in New York. Them is probably the 1950s version of Aliens. I mean, in a lot of ways. Yes, right. Especially yeah. the end. Yeah, it it really it, that that whole thing at the end is is you know I don't want to say any more about it, but we're going to put a link to the movie in the show notes because if you've yeah. if you're out there listening and you've never seen it, you have to see it. You do, and it's like get over the fact that the ants are 1950s FX and enjoy the story because it's it, it watch the people's reaction and, and it is it's great. It is great, and there's some and there's some great dialogue too. There is, some and you get to see. James, I think that's James Arness's first role. It's his second monster movie, I believe. I think right. he was in the Thing for, the from thing. another world right. first as the monster, but this this time he's the good guy, so, right? Uh, and there's this great sort of you know film more gangster lingo that goes on. <laughs> it's well, that sounds of, good for me. I think I think Arness, you know, his brother is Peter Graves, and I believe 
they both did giant monster movies, which is kind of yeah. Funny. He was Peter Graves was in um, the beginning of the end. With That's the big right, with, with the giant grasshoppers. Exactly. <laughs> I got that. It's not quite as good though. But <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> anyway, we could do a you know we could do a whole episode of just talking about monster movies. Yeah. Well, I oh, wanted, I, one the, episode. Yeah, we, we could do. I, there's genres. I, I still haven't done my kaiju episode, and that's that's got to happen. I, I'm, I'm pestering. Uh, I'm, I should I should call him out. Darren Nash owes me a Godzilla episode. Is all I'm saying. So uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll tell you what though. Um, we'll end it here, and uh, I really appreciate you joining us again. Yeah, and uh, thank you, Brian. We'll put thank links you. to all this it's in the show notes. It I'm was. looking forward to the Yeti Palooza, and I think I deserve some sort of recognition as being the most guest. The guest most on? I think you're the most guested. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Most if, guested? If you're not the most guested now, you will be after that one. I think, <laughs> right, yeah, you and then that'll Todd that'll be number five. Tell, maybe. Yeah, Todd, Todd's been on quite a few right. times. So he, uh-huh. It's a fight. Closer runner-up. Yeah. Monster fight. Fight. <laughs> you, you, you do a great job with these, and, and my students are always pestering me, when are you going to be on Monster Talk again? Are you so serious? now I can That's tell Oh, cool. <laughs> we really appreciate anybody who listens to this. <laughs> we do. We do. Love our listeners. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today, you heard an interview with Dr. Brian Regal of Kane University talking about the life of Montague Summers. Brian is also the author of several books that will be of interest to Monster Talk listeners, especially Searching for Sasquatch, which recently came out in a paperback edition. A link to selected works from Brian will be in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Do you like Monster Talk? Want to support the show? We've added a new page to our website, monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's where you can find links to purchase books to support the show or to donate to our PayPal and Patreon pages. You can buy books that directly support our research. And we love used books, so feel free to get the most inexpensive one if that's how you want to help. Kindle books are great because Karen and I can share them through Amazon's digital lending program. And speaking of books, this page will also have links to books written by Karen and hopefully in the near future by me as well. And if you don't have the means to help us out that way, you can always give us a good review on iTunes or Google Play or share the show on Twitter or Facebook. All of those help us grow our audience. Thank you. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views you hear expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily represent the views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you want to know the views of the Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine, why not put on your priestly robes and peddle your penny farthing down to your nearest purveyor of premium periodicals to check out the very latest issue. Do you enjoy the ideas and topics discussed on Monster Talk? Do you want to meet more people curious about science and the mysterious that it seeks to understand? Why not attend SciCon 2016 in Las Vegas? That's CSICON 2016. Here's Barry Carr and Nora Hurley to discuss. Barry, I hear CSI is having a fabulous Las Vegas trip coming up this October. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, SciCon Las Vegas. It's our fourth SciCon conference. It's at the Excalibur Hotel, which have you, are you familiar no, with Vegas? No, I've never, I'm not familiar. Oh. That's for rich people. I'm, <laughs> I'm poor, so. But it's the big castle. We'll have a joust tournament. Can I be a princess? You, you could be a princess. There's <laughs> kings and horses and jousting tournaments and magicians. It's going to be great fun. 
We have workshops. There's five workshops, including things like investigative techniques, skeptical activism, mind reading. How to, we're going to teach you how to read people's minds. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready for this. <laughs> well, there's some people's minds I don't want to read. But, <laughs> hey. So, yeah, we got all these events going on. I mean, there's okay. costume party. Skeptics love to dress up in costumes. I don't know why. <laughs> we have two magic shows, Jamie Swiss and Banachek, who works with Chris Angel. Oh, wow. Uh, so Banachek's going to be there. He's a wonderful mentalist. Uh, there's there's just so much stuff going on. The workshops, we have a Houdini seance. We're going to bring Houdini back from the dead, finally. He's never come back before, but this year we, we have a feeling. Uh, uh, very, well, very, who's even going to be there? You haven't even gotten to the speakers. Oh, the, oh, yeah. the speakers. This yeah. Is the, the, the main part of the whole thing. Well, right. The, the, the main part. Well, we have speakers like Michael Mann on climate change, Kevin Folta on GMOs. Elizabeth Loftus talking about her memory research. Oh, uh, cool. Jill Tarter talking about SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. There's Eugenie Scott. There's Lawrence Krauss, oh, Richard wow. Dawkins. And James Randi's going to be there. I mean, I've been talking five minutes. I haven't mentioned Randy yet. James Randi's going to oh, be there. Oh, that's awesome. And one person I'm really looking forward to seeing is Olivia Newton-John. She, I mean, she's not going to be at the conference, though, right? No, but she's in Vegas that weekend. <laughs> Barry, I don't think she's going to come to the conference. Well, she might not come to the conference, but she's just near there. So you know, who knows? You're not going to leave the conference to go find Olivia Newton-John, Barry. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? If you had the opportunity to see Olivia Newton-John, wouldn't you take it? No. No, no. I would go to the awesome conference you just I'm told me about. Both. I'm going to do both. I'm going to be in two places at once. Right after you, once. you invent time travel. I'm going to be in two places at once. Don't tell the skeptics I said that. <laughs> Can we invite her to the karaoke anyway? Barry, let's just say I don't think she's going to be hopelessly devoted to coming to karaoke. But she is the one that I want. All right. If you guys want to come on out to the conference, you can register at... CSIconference.org. You guys should register. We're all going to be there. It's going to be really fun. Don't miss out. There's a castle. (laughs) There's a castle. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a fun conference with lots of icons of science and skepticism in attendance. We're still working out details on our first Monster Talk Live event, but we will post the details on Facebook as well as eSkeptic when we get them ready. I expect we'll be using Google Hangouts, which allows for submission of questions during the show. It'll have live video, in case you're wondering what we look like in real life. And I'm very much looking forward to the event. But even if you can't attend, the outcoming audio will be used as a regular Monster Talk episode. Also, we're putting together another literary episode and revisiting the impact of H.P. Lovecraft on fiction and monster lore. If you have any questions for that episode, you can send them to me via Blake at monstertalk.org and just put HPL or Lovecraft in the subject so I can get all the questions to our guest, Robert M. Price, in case he needs to do any late night graveyard digging to get to the moldy bones that entomb your answers. We'll have lots of other fun stuff coming up. We want you, our listeners, to have a chance to get involved. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete's Stealing Monkeys. Thank you again for listening.
Did you know that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com slash magazine slash app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content. Normally, I like to put little outtakes here, but this week I'm just going to throw out an observation. The movie Them one of my favorite giant monster horror films but when it comes to overall supernatural movies night of the demon sometimes called curse of the demon is way up at the top of that list i've long found it interesting that the sound effects for both menaces is quite similar check it out yourself here are the ants from them and here is the sound when the demon first appears in Night of the Demon. What do you think? Pretty similar or do you disagree? Come and join the discussion on our Facebook page.